Welcome to Preaching in Season, a series designed to help ministers in their work of reading and preaching the Word. In this episode, Bible professor Mark Hamilton leads us in an exploration of the text that many churches will read for the fourth Sunday in Lent, 2022. Thank you for listening. This is the fifth in a series of podcasts called Preaching in Season, in which we explore the text that the Common Lectionary gives us for Lent this year. The, the texts for today are Joshua 5, 9 through 12, Psalm 32, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21, and Luke 15, 1 through 3, and 11b through 32. I'd like to talk a little bit about each of these texts, uh, but also note that they have at least one thing in common, which is they're about stories of transition, of moving into new worlds, new situations. The first story is from Joshua chapter 5, a very short story in which uh, the, uh, the manna, the provision of manna comes to an end. You remember that starting very early in their time in the wilderness, back in Exodus, the children of Israel had been given this what is it stuff. The word manna means what is it. This whatchamacallit, which they've been eating, uh, among other things, uh, because they're not in a settled agricultural zone. They, this, this manna has certain extraordinary properties in that uh, if you gather too much of it, it rots. Uh, and if, except on Sabbath, uh, you're supposed to gather on the day before the Sabbath enough for two days. It's as though even the bacteria takes the Sabbath and rests from its work of decomposing the material. So this 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 food, which is sometimes called the food of the angels, this, this bread from heaven, uh, provides uh, the people with the nourishment that they need in the wilderness. Well, it stops in Joshua 5 because the children of Israel have, have come to the promised land and there's no need for the provision to continue. There will be other provisions made for their well-being and their survival. Verse 11 is important because it says, on the day after the Passover, on that very day they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. In other words, the manna, the manna's beginning is framed by the flight from Egypt, and the manna's ending is also connected to the festival that reminds Israel of the flight from Egypt. And so there is that, that sense that of closure and of opening at the same time. Now, the next text that also gives us closure and opening is Psalm 32. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Well, that sounds like a bit of good news during Lent, when many of us are thinking about repentance and reform and clearing away the rubbish. The good news is that the the ordering of our lives that we can engage in can be successful. It's not a futile activity. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity. Even if, if the rubbish we have to clear away is evil doing, moral failure of some kind, or rebellion against uh, God, a refusal to take God seriously, even, even terrible sins uh, have an end. 
They need not define our lives going forward. And then we get uh, the psalm drifting into the language that reminds uh, the audience of lament. While I kept silent, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. The psalmist has experienced pain, a pain that, uh, according to the text in this case, is punishment. The text doesn't say that all pain is punishment. It doesn't say that all is deserved. But in the case of this psalm, the pain was somehow earned. It's deserved. <laughs> and yet, when the psalmist cries out to God and confesses sin, then there is forgiveness. There is mercy because the God who led Israel through the wilderness and fed them with manna does not intend to make their descendants suffer inevitably and, and without end, but rather calls them back to the story, calls them back to be who they were supposed to be from the beginning. This psalm, like so many psalms, goes in lots of different directions at the same time. It uh, sometimes focuses on the, the one praying and that person's story, that story of, uh, of suffering and, and redemption. Sometimes it focuses on God, as it does in the next few verses, when we get the language of the hiding place that we've seen already in the, the Linton text, and we'll see again, God is the refuge. We, we heard last week about hiding under God's wings. So uh, we get here this sense that God is, is taking care of the psalmist. Again, I want to emphasize that this, neither this psalm nor any other psalm gives us a thorough and comprehensive understanding of human suffering. Neither this text nor any other text assumes that all pain is earned, nor does it assume that all pain is redemptive. There is redemptive pain, the things we can learn from. There is pain that seems unredemptive, that's very hard to make any sense of, because it, um, it seems gratuitous and excessive. But that's not what this psalm is about. This psalm is about pain that the, the person has brought on him or herself. Now, there is a shift in verse 8. Uh, in verses 1 through 7, the uh, psalmist is speaking to God. But in verse 8, that can't possibly be right because the text says, I will instruct you. Obviously, the psalmist is not going to instruct God. And so we are left with two possibilities. Either the psalmist is now talking to the audience, to whoever might hear this psalm, and therefore in some ways to us, or it's God speaking to the psalmist. This is the response. I think it's not easy to know which is right, and there, there are good reasons to go either direction. I, I prefer to go the second direction, and to think that the, the response, this is God's response, that God is saying to the psalmist, I, I'm, I'm going to use this pain uh, in a redemptive way in that you're going to learn something from it. I will instruct you. And so God, the judge, God the disciplinarian suddenly becomes God the teacher, God the one who brings enlightenment. Well, we saw that last time when Paul talks about 
the people's suffering in the wilderness and our and our studying of their suffering as an opportunity for enlightenment. They were a model. Here, we don't have that exactly, but we have a very closely related idea that the person can learn from this experience. Verse 9, how do you learn? Well, don't be like a mule or a horse. Animals learn things. You know, we, we, we know that dogs can do tricks and horses can do tricks and, and that gorillas can learn sign language and all sorts of things. Animals can learn things too. But at least for some animals, in order to learn things, there has to be a certain amount of coercion. You put bits in horses' mouths to lead them where you want them to go. And if they won't go that way, you pull on the bridle and it hurts, and then they amend their ways. Or you use reward, pain of reward. In this text, the statement is, let's not, we've had pain, let's not keep using that. Uh, let's, let's think and embrace the, our human capacity to learn. Now, I know in the last couple of years, we've wondered how, how strong that capacity is because we seem to make the same mistakes over and over again. But the psalmist thinks that human beings do have this capacity to learn, and therefore we should embrace that. And then the psalm ends with the call, and here, here the, the psalmist is speaking to the audience clearly. And so perhaps we have a sort of third stance in the, in the psalm in these 11 short verses. And the, the psalmist speaks to the audience and says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous ones. If you take seriously the walk of faith, rejoice. Do not allow yourself to be consumed with the affliction of the moment. Do not surrender to the pain. Know that there's something beyond it. Do not be too discouraged. Lift up your hearts. Be glad and shout for joy. Don't, don't just celebrate quietly. Do so in ways that other people can see. Now, that focus on what other people can see also shows up in our next text from the epistle from 2 Corinthians 5. Paul is carrying on this argument with the Corinthians about, about really the nature of the gospel. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And he's written them the first letter to the Corinthians is rather in your face and very blunt sort of document. Uh, and, and in 2 Corinthians, he, he certainly doesn't back away from the ideas or the point or the goal, but the tone is different. And so he says here, from now on, therefore, we do not regard anybody from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we now no longer know him in that way. What does Paul mean by that? He himself did not know the earthly Jesus. Uh, he makes a point of that, that he was an apostle called out of due season. Unlike Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and all the rest of them, he did not walk with Jesus and hear his voice and see his miracles. His encounter came later. So he doesn't mean, I used to know Jesus the way Peter, Andrew, James, and John knew him. What does he mean? I think he means that previously I, I misunderstood who Jesus was. 
Of course, originally he thought Jesus was a fraud and somebody to be opposed and somebody who rightly was executed. And so that would certainly be viewing him from a human point of view. But perhaps even later, as he is only beginning to understand who Christ is, he sees him from a human point of view. So he says, he says this, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. That's Paul's very important phrase, in Christ. In Christ is the state of being of those who have left the slavery to sin and have been liberated and have begun to follow Jesus. Uh, one way to put it is he believes that in this world we are in Christ and in the next world we will be with Christ. But he says we are in Christ. I think that's that's there are a lot of things there that are very important. One is to remember that the word Christian, which Paul himself never uses, he he never uses the word Christian, never calls himself a Christian. But but the word is a noble word. Uh, it is not the word of a tribe. It is not a tribal marker. It's not a a label we use to so we know who our enemies are, the people who are not that label. Uh, the best way, or at least an important way, to understand who we are is that we are in Christ, that we are connected to his suffering so that we may be connected to his triumph. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What Paul is doing here is really summarizing the whole gospel in just a few verses. That we have been reconciled to God. We are no longer God's enemies. We are no longer strangers to God. We are intimately connected to God because we are imitating Jesus Christ in his sufferings. And, and therefore, since we are, we've been reconciled, we engage in the business of reconciliation ourselves. Everything we do as Christians is about reconciling people to God and to each other. Uh, God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God does not define human beings by our errors of judgment or by our deliberate acts of immorality. God does not define us by our sin, by our failure, by our weakness. God defines us as people capable of receiving reconciliation. I think that's incredibly important because uh, many Christians don't see it that way, frankly. Many Christians are very eager to emphasize maybe their own flaws, certainly the flaws of other people, and to see to see those flaws as defining of identity. We, if if we can mark the other person as evil, we can justify our own disdain and disregard or, or even cruelty toward them. But that's not how God acts, according to Paul. We are ambassadors for Christ. 
we put the best foot forward. Oh, it's language that comes from the world of politics, obviously. For Paul, it's not, it's not so much an ambassador from one independent nation to another, but it, it may be the ambassador from some city or some small sub-kingdom in the Roman Empire to the central government. It's, uh, it's a mission to Rome, let's say, in which the, the, the person tries to represent the needs of the people who sent, sent him, usually it's a him in their world, uh, maybe uh, a group that's appealing for some mercy or some help. It's, it's actually a little earlier than uh, 2 Corinthians, for example, that uh, the Jewish community in Alexandria sent an embassy to the Emperor Gaius, who's better known as Caligula, and basically begged him not to massacre Jews and not to put a statue of himself in the temple. Uh, luckily for the whole planet, Caligula died early. Good riddance, actually. I think everybody agreed, good riddance. But, but that's the sort of thing Paul has in mind, that we, we represent a cause. Our cause is Christ. The one whom we wish to talk about is Christ. His desires, his needs, his attitudes, his, his character, his love for others, his mercy toward others. Those are the things of which we speak. God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Of course, he's talking to Christians. Uh, don't know how many pagans were going to be reading 2 Corinthians. He's talking to the church. And he says to the church, be reconciled to God. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's an extraordinary statement, really. Paul says, let me tell you the biggest story I've ever could imagine. Let me tell you the biggest story there is. And let me tell you that you're part of it. And therefore, you should embrace the life you have not with fear, not with a sense of obligation, but a sense of joy, a sense that, that something extraordinary is, is happening and you're part of that. Now that, that comes up finally in our gospel reading, very familiar text from Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is a series of parables about things that were lost and then are found. And it ends with the story that all of us know, the story of the, the prodigal son. A man had two sons, a younger one and an older one. The younger one, for some reason, came to dad and said, please give me what, you're, what I'm going to get when you die. It's, it's quite rude, actually. Give me my inheritance. And for some bizarre reason, the father does it. I would wonder how many fathers in the ancient world or the modern world would have done it. I think not very many. He gives the son his inheritance and the, the son goes away somewhere and wastes it, spends it in riotous living, and then a famine comes. We do need to hear, as a lot of people have pointed out, both sides of that story. Uh, he's c c not called the prodigal son in the Bible, but it's an ancient name for him. 
This son wasted his money. He threw it away, living foolishly. But then there was a famine, and he suffered. And like the psalmist of Psalm 32, he woke up and realized that there has to be better way than what's going on here. So the suffering was extreme. Now, I think a lot of people have pointed out that when, when this text is talked about, North Americans usually notice the phrase about riotous living, and so our moralism kicks in. And people in other countries, like say the, the former Soviet Union, notice the words, there was a famine. It's hard for us U.S. citizens to really think much about that because we most of us have never been in a famine. We've only seen them on the news, unless you've come from a place where you did experience that. Uh, and so it's hard for us to understand the depth of this man's terror and remorse, and his sense that uh, I'm going to die here, and what an ignominious, terrible way to do it die with the pigs alone. What a terrible way to go. So I'm going to go home. Let us hear the poignancy of his resolve. He knows that when he goes home, there's not going to be a pot of money waiting for him. When the old man dies, he's not going to divide the inheritance again between his two sons. We know that because later in the story, one, because it would be unjust to do so, to give the younger son twice what he deserved, but, but the old man himself says he's not going to do that. He says to the, younger, to the older brother, when he confronts him at the end of the story, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. So when the younger brother goes home, he knows that there's not going to be a pot of money waiting for him. What there might be is enough food to get through the day. What there might be, if he's very fortunate, is some sense of dignity. At least he will be in familiar surroundings. At least he will know people around him. At least he won't die alone with the pigs. But of course, the welcome is much bigger than that. He's surprised, and we're surprised, because the father doesn't scold him and doesn't demand some sort of compensation and doesn't browbeat him and doesn't remind him again and again of his mistakes. He simply throws him a party. He says, welcome home, son, welcome home. We don't know what happens next. We don't know what will happen when the old man dies. We don't know what the rest of this young man's life will be like. This is not part of the story. All Jesus wants to tell us about is the welcome home. And, of course, he also adds this bit about the older brother, whom we tend in our preaching nowadays to beat up on, though, frankly, we beat up on him because we're trying to remind ourselves that we're pretty much inclined to be like him. The older brother makes some very serious accusations. He says to dad, you never threw me a party. I did all the right stuff and you didn't treat me well. The old man doesn't ever quite answer that. He neither affirms nor denies the charges. What he does do 
and this is the genius of the storytelling we're we're encountering here he doesn't chase the rabbits he says to him simply son you are always with me and all that is mine is yours i'm not going to argue with you i'm not going to get into a debate you are my son also i welcome you just as i do your brother i don't care about the money i don't care about the estate much i'm going to do right by you you don't have to worry about that but the thing you need to know is you are my child it's a powerful story it never ceases to yield some fruit in when we encounter it with an open mind uh, but it's a powerful story because it gets to the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The, the follower of Jesus Christ is the one that knows that the God who created all things also welcomes all things and seeks to redeem all things so that nothing is lost. Who says to all of us, son, daughter, you're always with me. And I am always with you. And all that is mine is yours. Thank you for listening. I look forward to further conversations next week. Preaching in Season is a production of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University in partnership with the Center for the Study of Ancient Religious Texts. If you're interested in learning more about us and what we do, visit us at acu.edu gst or email us at gst at acu.edu. Until next time.